DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Joseph Pierce, who is a native of England, is director of book publishing at Augustan Institute and editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions. He's the author of numerous biographies of Christian literary figures, including Shakespeare, Tolkien, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, L.R. Belloc, Oscar Wilde, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. With Joseph Pierce, we go inside the pages of Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England, published by Ignatius Press. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a joy as always, Chris. You know, the joy, can we multiply it by 10? When I got Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England in my hands, I have not been able to put it down. I have enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Joseph. Oh, my pleasure. It was very much a labor of love, and I hope that's clear from the writing of it. Obviously, I did quite a lot of groundwork as regards research, but really the writing of it, it, it the, the, whole, the whole history of, of true England, which is Catholic England, sort of sang to my soul. And I'm hoping that, that that singing to my soul comes out on the page, because that's what it felt like when I was writing it, as if I was singing singing a song that my my nation was sort of, uh, if you like, uh, as a muse pouring through me. You have served up in other work wonderful insights on this rich English history. And I love all those books too. I have put those aside. But what you've done with this one is you've, you've given this wonderful overview. You connect it especially the, the Christian nature and origins in England with uh, where we are today. There's a synthesis about it that is just phenomenal. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. I think there's, there's two things, uh, that I suppose, are the main theses of it. Uh, one is that uh, we need to see history in the light of God's omnipresence. In other words, that the past is not past to God. It's present to God, and the future is also present to God. So, when we understand history in that sense, we can see that we can see, if you like, that to God, Alfred the Great is as present to him in his role on the English stage as I am in my life, etc. So there's that, if you like, metaphysical, almost mystical understanding of, of time and its and its relationship to God and eternity, but also the fact that you know, true England, to define our terms here, is is the England that's remained true to the truth himself, and again to emphasise the truth himself. Because, of course, Jesus Christ tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a book is a eulogy, if you like, to the England that remained true to Christ through 2,000 years. You make me want to go to Glastonbury. I hadn't even really understood the importance or why that would be a significant place in English history, but it really is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Glastonbury, first of all, is, is, is about as old as it gets, um, now, according to, well, uh, again, we can talk about pious legend, which is very probably wishful thinking. The St. Joseph of Arimathea uh, came to England, um, and one legend even says, with the Christ child, and wonderful wishful thinking. But certainly less implausible, but, um, but still unlikely, is that St. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea led the first Christian mission to England in 63 AD. Now, whether or not he was with that initial group of Christian missionaries, that's an entirely feasible date because we know that the Christian religion uh, basically followed the, uh, the, the expansion of the Roman Empire 
So that would that would fit in just about 10 or so years after the arrival of the Romans in England, um, and only 30 years, of course, after the crucifixion. And the key thing is that, that everybody links the uh, the foundation, uh, the founding of the Christian presence in England with Glastonbury, with uh, with that place in Somerset, which has had uh, an abbey right through to, to its destruction uh, by Henry VIII from, from the first century, even in the early centuries, so sort of second or third century, the shrine to the Blessed Virgin at Glastonbury was already seen as ancient. So it's not, it, it's in, entirely likely that there was some church uh, dedicated to the Blessed Virgin there from the first century AD. Yeah, I mean, you make a really important point, and this is why I always love reading you, especially when we're dealing with the English language. Words matter, right? And so it's an important thing in our head to understand between the implausible and the impossible. Now, is it plausible, impossible that, you know, that Joseph of Arimathea came? That's something that we can leave up, but it, it's possible, isn't it? Basically, you know, the southwest of England uh, is, a, is a mining area, tin mining in particular, but there were other minerals being mined there. And we know that there was extensive trade between Cornwall uh, and Devon, Glastonbury is in Somerset, which is one of these western counties, uh, between Cornwall and Devon and the Mediterranean countries, uh, widespread trading uh, in minerals. So if if Joseph Arimathea was a, a wealthy businessman uh, of some sort, uh, it's entirely possible that he travelled. Um, you know, and if he was friends with the family, it's, it's entirely possible possible unlikely i agree that he you know we don't know hadn't we have no idea what what our lord and savior jesus christ was doing uh, apart from that one episode when he's about 13 years old from his childhood to when he, his public ministry begins so um consequently you know we don't know what he was doing for that 30 years it's implausible uh, but it isn't impossible, and certainly it is possible that St. Joseph of Amethia was, was one of the missionaries, because this um, legend is not just, doesn't just apply to England, but also legends surrounding St. Joseph of Amethia leading missions through France. So, you know, there's a testimony to it. So I'm not making a big claim that, that the St. Joseph of Amethia was, did come to England, um, but it's plausible. Um, but either way, it's definitely, you know, beyond, beyond uh, uh, mere conjecture that the first Christian missionaries would have arrived very soon after the Romans arrived, in other words, during the first century. And I see no, re- no reason to believe that the date of 63 AD should not be one that we can take seriously. It's about grace, isn't it, ultimately, in the sense that some grace had fed this area through the presence of these early missionaries at a very early age that planted the seeds for the faith that took such deep roots and had to endure over centuries and centuries such persecution. Yes, and and what what I think we need to remember, because I was always taught sort of conventional uh, English history is that, you know, that the England became Catholic after the arrival of St. Augustine of Canterbury, uh, at the end of the sixth century, um, in the in the 590s, uh, and he converted the pagan um, Germanic tribes, the, the Saxons and uh, the Angles, etc., to Christianity. But that is not. The, the, I mean, he did do that. But the Christian presence had remained in England from the time from the first century. I mean, the legends around about around King Arthur, and again, that there's there's quite a bit. Well, there's something about that in the book. 
Now, we don't know to what extent who King Arthur was, but they, they, we certainly know that there, were, there was a Christian Celtic king who was fighting against the pagans after the Romans left. Um, so basically, when the Romans left in the uh, early uh, 5th century, the England was mainly basically a Catholic country, and the people that lived there were still Catholics. Um, the, even many of the Saxons that lived around the coastline of England would have been Catholics. They, they would have been con converts to the faith. So the pagan tribe did move in, and they certainly did have great influence for a time after they first started moving in from the end of the 5th century. For about a, so for about a century, England, if you like, had this uh, dual identity. It's older Christian heritage and these new pagans that have cut, that have come in. But then St. Augusta of Canterbury comes in the late 6th century and converts them, and then England is, is an entirely Catholic country thereafter again. But the point is that England has been largely Catholic since almost the time of Christ, 63 AD, 20 years, 30 years after the crucifixion. Let's just give a shout-out to and a big thank you to St. Gregory the Great for sending St. Augustine <laughs> to Canterbury. But also let's lift up and recognize as an important figure in somebody that all Catholics should really understand and know is St. Bede the Venerable, who chronicled so much and, again, is one of those who just helped us to be able to contain or to be able to lift up this rich heritage. Yes, indeed. Obviously, it's the work of St. Bede, his work of history, his ecclesiastical history of uh, of the English people that allows us to know so much about Anglo-Saxon England and about uh, the, the, the Roman England is obviously much closer to, to the times and the sources than any of uh, us are. So thanks be to him, we have, we have this relatively close source of what's happening then. So anybody who's writing about early Anglo-Saxon England uh, and, uh, and, and Celtic Roman uh, Britain prior to that, St. Bede the Venerable is a priceless resource, uh, his work. And, of course, he's a doctor of the church. And the, the key thing we need to know about him as well is he belongs to a golden age of Anglo-Saxondom because it's around the same time that we have uh, the, 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 the wonderful old English epic, Beowulf, that's being written by a monk, a, a contemporary probably of Bede's, uh, and also great uh, old English poetry such as The Dream of the Rood, The Wanderer, uh, the seafarer. I mean, some of the greatest poetry that I've ever read, it was written at this time. So this was a golden age, not just of Christendom, but of the fruits of Christendom, including great culture and great literature. Yeah, I think when we hear about the Norman invasions and, of course, the great tapestry, we have to realize that part of what was going on in England was also that invasion that would come over from the shores of Normandy. And that had a great influence on the life of the people at the time, too. It did. 1066, the date of the uh, of the Norman conquest, the, the victory of uh, William of Normandy over King Harold Godwinson, the Anglo-Saxon King of England, at the Battle of Hastings, is, is an absolute turning point. Now, but it, what, it, what it didn't do was change the faith of the people. In other words, England was profoundly Catholic before the conquest, and remain profoundly Catholic after it. And the major impact wasn't to the, the, the faith of the people, but certainly to the culture of the people, because from the time of the Norman Conquest onwards, uh, the, the language of, of, of scholars had always been Latin. Uh, so uh, King Alfred the Great, for instance, translated um, Boethius's Constellation of Philosophy from Latin into English. So the language of, of scholarship had always been Latin. That didn't change. But what did change was the language of the court, the language of the intelligentsia, 
was French from the Norman Conquest onwards, and it was only the peasants that spoke Old English. So over a period of time, uh, over a period of, of, of a couple of centuries, the language, if you like, metamorphosed, and it emerges triumphantly as what we now know as Middle English in the writing of uh, Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, in his Canterbury Towers and other writings, which is the, this modern English which we now see, which is this sort of coming together of the old English Germanic influences of the language with the, the new French uh, Gallicized aspects of the language. I know that, that Tolkien laments, and so do I, uh, the passing of the purity of the old English tongue, which was uh, a beautiful thing in its own right. But the, the new English, you know, is also a great thing, and, and we see it, obviously, who can lament the language of Shakespeare. So this coming together of, of, of the French and the Germanic elements of the of the European languages in Middle English and then Modern English is something I think none of us can can actually regret. For instance, I mean, just to give one example. You know, we have we have a, a greater word choice to choose from, which obviously enables more flexibility. So we can use we can choose to use the word freedom if you want to go to the you know the, the Germanic roots of the language, or we can use the word liberty if you want to go go to the um, the, the French and Latin roots of the language. So we, we have a choice. That's what modern English is. And that's certainly a cultural fruit of the Norman Conquest. Can you say that the language really is a metaphor for the people just because of all the different influences? I and mean, when you go to France and Italy and the different Romance languages in Spanish, there's always a, a kind of a connection. You can kind of make out words. But when it comes to English, it really is just a pot of, so many different international experience, at least cultivated in that region, I should say. Does that make sense? Yes, I mean, because you can actually add to the obviously the dominant Germanic and and French uh, French admission to the Germanic original language. There's a lot of uh, Scandinavian uh, mm-hmm. because, of course, the Vikings, the Danes, settled large parts of England, the northeast and the east of the country, particularly. You can actually find. Scandinavian words, Norse words in the English language also. So it is a melting pot uh, of different of different languages. And what we love as the richness of the modern English language is a consequence of that. I just have to say, in the beginnings of every chapter of Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England, Joseph, you have these wonderful quotations from the great literary writers. I mean, when you start out a book with William Blake, how can you not love it? Or like in this particular chapter, chapter five, when we're talking about this particular period, Rudyard Kipling, look at all the influences and the, the beauty that comes out of England. What I loved about it, I feel very blessed um, that I managed to find, because the, the quotes at the beginning of the chapters are, I think, almost exclusively, they're not prose, they are poetry. First of which, it's a great tribute to the breadth and depth and richness of poetic heritage in English language that we can quote from all these poets to illustrate different uh, parts of English history. When you're writing of, of true England, or you know, the same would apply of writing about true Ireland or true France, that part of a, a nation's heritage which has been true to Christ, it is a song that basically history becomes a hymn of praise. So for me, it's appropriate that, you know, that this... Uh, there's a refrain, a poetic refrain, if you like, that runs through the whole book of of poetry that sets up, uh, the, sets the scene, if you like, for each new chapter, because we are talking about a song of praise in time, which is the history of Catholic England. And, and I, I think it needs to be sung and it needs to be read or seen as such. 
Do you think, Joseph, that in recent times we've had a resurgence of the work of Dante? People have really gotten into the Divine Comedy because it seems to be, for many people, such a work, some have termed it even a mystical work that has made so many truths, that Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is one of those works that could someday enjoy that same type of resurgence and appreciation. The Canterbury Tales are marvelous, and they also contain a great deal of spiritual wealth. Um, the work is, the whole work as a whole, because it's unfinished, which is, which is a shame, uh, but, but really Chaucer's plan for it was so grandiose that it was never likely to come to fruition. Um, but even the fragments that, that, that he did write before he died um, form, if you like, a whole, which is, which is a, a spiritual meditation ultimately on the seven deadly sins and on the necessity of, of virtue, and specifically the virtue of, uh, of humility. And, and Chaucer, like Dante, was part of the scholastic medieval tradition um, he was um, very uh, much a Thomist, very much a philosophical realist in, in that Thomistic tradition. So that philosophy shines forth in his work. And he's a great poet. And again, Chaucerian English is, is beautiful English. It's sometimes said that Hilaire Belloc had a revival because he's followed in on the coattails of, of the Chesterton revival. And I think that's true. And I, and I rejoice at it. But I, hopefully we might hope that Chaucer might have a, a revival, as you intimate, uh, by being uh, following uh, on the coattails of uh, of the great Dante. If we, if we have this interest, a resurgence and renewal of interest in great medieval literature, then Chaucer can only benefit from that revival. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. 
If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Inside the Pages. These are such interesting times, too, in English history. When I was a young girl, I didn't know very much about it. I, I knew that, like so many, just the tales of Richard the Lionhearted and King John. I think where it really struck me is when I first saw A Lion in Winter. It was Catherine Hepburn's portrayal of Eleanor of Aquitaine and with Peter O'Toole. Those performances were very grand performances, and it was really beautiful. But these people actually lived, and their influences on this area and all of Europe were tremendous. It wasn't just a play, was it? I agree with you about that particular film, what a wonderful film it is, what, what wonderful actors, and what a wonderful job they did. But, it's, but it was actually very dark. And there's an element about that which is appropriate, that there's certainly a great deal of darkness in medieval England and medieval Europe, as there is a great deal of darkness in every generation uh, in this valley of tears but um, there was also the actual culture as a whole was very joyful I mean that, that's why I write in the book about Merry England and the culture of Merry England so for instance there was a great devotion in England to the new feast day of Corpus Christi all over the country the guilds would get together and perform uh, mystery plays a whole cycle of plays you know maybe two dozen plays over a period of several days so for instance Corpus Christi would be a four-day festival basically probably begin on the Wednesday of the eve of the Feast of Corpus Christi, which is on the Thursday. And then the, 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 basically the celebrations would continue on the Friday and the Saturday and the Sunday. And, and the people would rejoice in their love and adoration for the Blessed Sacrament by, by putting on these plays that the people would, would, would travel to uh, and enjoy. And, and, and the guilds would spend all year, you know, designing the stage sets and, and obviously the actors uh, rehearsing to make the actual performances when they come so well. This was the backdrop. And then there were country fairs on, you know, the, on major saints' days. People would go to, on a certain saints' day, they'd go to a fair that would be held in the town to celebrate the saint. So you have this great culture of festivity of the people in the background, uh, irrespective of, of, of the corruption and Machiavellian politics of, of those in power, which is sadly, as usual, the case. I'm also so glad that you touched upon the life of Julian of Norwich with a whole plethora of different people that you bring forward because there's so much that you could do. But the fact that you kind of just give a glimpse of the life. I pull her out as just one example of the many examples you use in this book. Yeah, I mean, my own personal shire, I mean, you know, as you know, that I'm a great lover of J.R.R. Tolkien and, and for me that his depiction of the shire in uh, Middle-earth, in, in The Lord of the Rings, his evocation of an idyllic medieval, probably Anglo-Saxon England. For me, my shire is Norfolk, uh, which is in the northern part of East Anglia. That's where I spent my last 12 years. I spent my childhood just south of there. So that's my shire. So for me, obviously, it, it's a joy to be able to mention people such as Julian of, Julian of Norwich. Norwich is a county town of, of Norfolk. Uh, also, the Shrine of Walsingham is in Norfolk, uh, the medieval Marian Shrine of Walsingham. I also mentioned that the other, the other town of any size, other than Norwich, is Kings Lynn. And I mentioned the medieval mystic woman, Marjorie Kemp, 
14th century. So they yeah, had the, the, these wonderful female mystics, such as Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp, in that little corner of England, which which I consider uh, very much part of who I am. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a joy for me, if you like, to be able to return to old haunts and to be haunted by them again, which is great. There is never a time where I pick up a Joseph Pierce book and I, I can't stop. You make it a joy to read, even the hard parts, especially when we get into the truly gruesome part of history. And I think in all of Christian history, that period in English history with the Tudors, and that needs to be told. People need to understand just how nasty that was. Yes, indeed. And, and I think there's two things I would say about it. First of all, you're completely correct. Conventional English history, the English history that I was raised with, airbrushes out the 300 years of persecution of Catholics as if it didn't happen. Um, and indeed, there's a an anti-Catholic spin on English history, which is complete distortion and contortion of the truth. But what we have to understand is, you know, that for me, the 300 years of persecution are the most glorious three centuries in the history of true England. If you like, it's it's the passion of England. It's when England uh, is, is uh, the, the Catholics of England are being crucified with their Lord. They are, this is service of, of Christ, not on the cross, but service of Christ, um, sorry, not service of Christ, Christ on the cross, but service of Christ with Christ on the cross, where England herself, the Catholics, are being nailed to the cross, they're being true to the faith of Christ. So we have, from the 1530s to the 1680s, 150 years in which Catholic priests are actually being executed, put to death for their hideous crime of being a Catholic priest, and where Catholic laity are being put to death for the hideous crime of hiding Catholic priests from the authorities. And then after this 150 years of execution, we have a following further 150 years of persecution, where although Catholic priests are no longer being executed, the Catholics do not have equal rights under law in terms of property rights, political rights, um, rights to serve in the army and the civil service and court, etc. So, you know, we, we talk about things such as slavery, and so we should. It's hideous. Uh, and the way that African-Americans have been treated in, in, in history. And so we should, and it's hideous. But, you know, it's not exclusive to them. As an English Catholic, I can point to a 300 years where my co-religionists were being put to death for 150 years, and then for a further 150 years still being treated very much as second-class citizens in their own country. Even throughout all that, I mean, just the experience of the writings of William Shakespeare, I don't want to say decoded, but it, it needs to be fleshed out. Does that make sense? Absolutely. As you know, Chris, I've written three books on Shakespeare because you know the, the meaning of Shakespeare's plays would have been evident enough to his uh, own time, uh, to, to the audience that were actually watching it. Um, uh, and that's clear, actually, just by looking at what we know of contemporary England. But, of course, once you put you know, four centuries of accretion on top of that, um, then we we as moderns lose some of that deep Catholic element. So, you know, I have spent quite a bit of time uh, trying to elucidate the Catholic dimension of Shakespeare's plays. But, you know, and that's the whole point. For me, that this period of the Tudor terror, the Tudor tyranny and, and the Stuart terror and the Stuart tyranny that followed it, is a time of glory. And it's almost as though, you know, we know when we see Christ on the cross that, the, that, that, that you know, the, the silver lining in the background of that, to that dark cloud is the resurrection. 
And, and we know that when these English martyrs go to their deaths, being hideously executed by the barbaric means of hanging, drawing, and quartering, that they are on their way to heaven. So for me, you know, that this is not a time of you know, wringing my hands in despair at what's happening to the Catholics. This is a time where the Catholics are called uh, to, to, to actually answer the, 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 the call of Christ to suffer persecution as he was persecuted. You know, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Well, that's something, it's easier said than done, but it's something we should glory in because we're doing what God, what Jesus Christ tells us we need to do. Um, so for me, these, the, the, these 300 years, if, if, if anything, are the, the jewel in the crown of English history. Um, it's, a, it's a stark period from the point of view of the way the world tries to crush the church, um, but from the point of view of the way that the church rejoices and the, the, blood of, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church, then of course we should rejoice. And I certainly, on one hand, I, I'm pleased to have corrected the lies and the cover-up of conventional history by bringing out the, the the persecution of the church, but I'm also pleased to rejoice, if you like, in some sense, in the persecution of the church. I think we need to be able to take a good look at it and to understand it. The colonization of the Americas, and particularly in the United States, the influence of that persecution and the why of things, such a dismissal of the Blessed Virgin Mary, why was there such a anti-Catholic bias, and in some ways still kind of continues today because of those particular influences. We don't realize their origins. Yeah, and basically what happened, I think, Chris, psychologically, is unlike in Europe, and we, can't, we, we have to be very careful, we should not speak uh, in terms of just there being a Reformation, because there were three distinct Reformations. Uh, in uh, in the 16th century. One was the Protestant Reformation, which happened on the continent uh, with leaders such as Luther and Calvin. Uh, the other was the Catholic Reformation, which was the church's response to the Protestant Reformation, uh, which sometimes called the Counter-Reformation, uh, which is a glorious reformation in its own right uh, in the Catholic Church. But the third Reformation was the English Reformation, which was basically when Henry VIII ripped uh, the Catholic faith away from the Catholic people of England against their will. So unlike in parts of Europe where the Protestants had a lot of support from the people, there was no support for Henry VIII's um, policies of, of closing, closing down the monasteries. And he would never have got away with it uh, if he hadn't basically bought off the aristocracy by saying, look, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're with me with this, all these, all these properties that belong to the church will be yours. That's why the abbeys and monasteries of England became manor houses. Um, the, the lords of the manor replaced the, uh, the abbots and monks. It was a debauch of avarice in pursuit of power. The, there were several uprisings throughout the 16th century in England by the people, uh, especially, by the way, when Edward VI, uh, King Henry VIII's son, banned the mass. There were uprisings across the country in defence of the, the, the Holy Liturgy. So, uh, but what happened, of course, is that when after decades and decades of relentless persecution, the English were browbeaten out of their Catholicism after generations, they didn't become Anglicans, they became cynical. Um, so that's why the, what the, the, in the wake of all this, we have England emerging as really the first major secular power. Um, and one of the reasons for that, for that cynicism, by the way, apart from... Uh, the people having their faith stolen from them 
was the Puritanism when it did take a foothold in England, um, largely because of people such as King Edward VI encouraging um, Puritans to move to England, um, that, it, that again, that they, that we had a Puritan dictatorship in the 1640s and 1650s in England, um, where the uh, following the English Civil War, we had a we had a Puritan dictatorship where they, amongst other things, they banned Christmas. So you know that there's no surprise that the English people, you know, rebelled against this Puritanism, uh, which was of course very anti-Catholic. You know, we have just begun to touch the, the tip of the iceberg in this wonderful, rich history you bring us in Faith of Our Fathers, a history of true England. Well, Joseph, you know I could talk to you all day. I could talk to you for, well, you name it, forever. But unfortunately, we're running out of time, and we haven't even touched on the the new springtime and the John Newman and the great literary revival that took place. I mean, there is so much here, isn't there? Yeah, and you have just touched upon it, thanks be to God. But I, I, I think the key thing about it is that by the early 19th century, if you were a so-called realist, you'd have said that, that Catholicism was finished in England. After three centuries of relentless persecution, there were only a few tens of thousands of practicing Catholics in the country, most of them in the north. And you, you'd have said it's over as regards the Catholic Church in England. It's effectively being destroyed. And then in 1845, we had the conversion of St. John Henry Newman. At the same time, because of the tragedy of the Irish potato famine, we have a large influx of working-class Catholics from Ireland um, and a whole slew of converts coming into the faith in the wake of Newman. That we have this great Catholic revival uh, in the latter half of the 19th century with Catholic churches being built all over the country, Catholic schools being opened, the number of baptisms, the, the Catholic uh, population increasing exponentially, and then in the Catholic literary revival, which produces Chesterton, Tolkien, and although Lewis not a Catholic, C.S. Lewis. Um, so the, we have these great works uh, of Christian civilization are a consequence of this Catholic cultural revival, which happens in the middle of the 19th century. So what we see, in fact, in the history of True England is the, 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 the death of True England and the resurrection of True England. Well, let's not forget Old Thunder. That is still one of my favorite books you've written on the life of Hilaire Belloc. And he is throughout this whole book. I mean, he really is a quintessential historian, isn't he? Yeah, and again, uh, thanks for mentioning him, and also thanks for mentioning my book, because when I'm asked, which is which is the favorite of all the books I've written, I actually often give Old Thunder as my answer. I love Belloc, and I, I wrote that book at about the time when I'd, I'd learned how to write books properly, <laughs> you know, having cut my teeth on, on Chesterton and others. So, um, uh, yeah, Belloc's crucial. He, he, he blazed the trail that I'm following here in writing Histories of England, which, which corrected the what he called the Tom Fall Protestant history, the lies that are told about uh, the history of England um, by the propagandists. Um, of the 19th, 18th and 19th century. So, yeah, he, he blazed a trail. He, he, and William Cobbett, I mean, I have a great debt of gratitude to those two great historians that helped to uh, to to expose the lies of, of conventional English history. So I'm, I'm glad you've given Belloc uh, the, the mention he needs. Well, I wouldn't have known anything about it if I hadn't read Old Thunder, which is still, I've told you that, it's one of my all-time favorites. The, the great journey of the soul. From being born in France, he's the the great Englishman in his traversing across America. I mean, this is you no. Know, you could get me going on and on about Belloc, but that's because of you, uh, Joseph. 
Well, only that for me, I I I can't express. I mean, for for someone who's a wordsmith, to be to be lost for words is always an uncomfortable position to find one in oneself in. But um, I I really can't find words adequately to thank our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for for putting me in a position where I'm able to tell the story of my own country um, in in the manner that I've been able to do so, and it's only through His grace and for the gifts He's given me over the years. Um, that, that enables me to do that. So ultimately, when all is said and done, although I'm someone who uses words, uh, I'm lost for words in, in, in the face of the gratitude I owe, the source of the inspiration for all that I do. As someone who is steeped in her own English ancestry, as I've shared with you on in different conversations, I am so grateful for this book, but I think it can really benefit anyone who wants to just understand the nature and the scope of a great emerald of witness that the, the English have brought to us. And it's such an important part of our Christian heritage. And I am so grateful that you have brought this forward, Joseph. Well, thank you, Chris. And again, you know, even those uh, Americans, you know, that, that have uh, as their heritage, unlike the two of us, that maybe be have Polish or Italian or Irish heritage or whatever, you know, the point is that the that we, we are part of the English-speaking uh, part of Western culture, um, and and so therefore, you know, that the, the roots of, the, of of that English culture is important to us because that's what we've, if you like, we've grafted ourselves onto by moving to the United States, even if we move from other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So I do think that the history of Catholic England is part of the heritage of the Catholic English speaking world, irrespective of people's. Uh, cultural roots uh, before they came to the States. So I do think it's something which we all share. And I do hope that that's something which people will come to see that the history of England's part of the wealth, part of the riches, the richness of our, of Christendom and our ca- shared Catholic cultural heritage. Well, to all my friends out there, no, you can't take my copy of Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England, but I will tell you, go out and get a copy of this book. It is absolutely wonderful. I just won't, I won't give mine up. I just won't. So, Joseph, thank you so much. My pleasure always, Chris. Thanks for having me. With Joseph Pierce, we've gone inside the pages of Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. We encourage you to visit his website, Joseph Pierce, celebrating the true, the good, and the beautiful, which can be found at jpierce.co. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it on the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.